You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the show. Stu Goldsmith here today. I'm talking to Ellie Taylor. We recorded this one a little bit before the Edinburgh Festival, so we're taking a time out from our fringe release schedule, our post-fringe release schedule, um, in order to bring you this interview. I'm very excited about it. Ellie and I started doing stand-up. Oh, no, we didn't. Well, we didn't start together, but we started doing stand-up on TV kind of together um, when we both took part in a show called Show Me the Funny which uh, arguably didn't, but uh, we'll be talking about that uh, a little bit and our experiences on it. It uh, was very, very uh, successful for Ellie and really made the world aware of her at exactly the right time. Or was it? We shall hear. Um, We shall hear. Who is he? Giles Brandreth. Anyway, the point is that uh, this episode is coming out now because although I didn't prioritise it throughout Edinburgh, I wanted to, to kind of push and promo people who are on at the Edinburgh Festival. Ellie is going on tour from the 26th of September. She's going to be appearing at the Epsom, somewhere in Epsom. I don't know where it is, I assume. Is it the Playhouse, the theatre? There's some sort of big theatre in Epsom. It's that one. 26th of September is the key points. And you can go to ellietaylorcomedy.com in order to find more details. There'll be a link in the in the show notes of this podcast. Her tour show is called Don't Got This, and we're going to be talking about that quality that Ellie has. She's very, very funny, and her act-outs can spring gazelle-like uh, from her being very, very glamorous to her being kind of grotesque and icky. And I think uh, we will talk about how she plays with that dynamic in this interview. I had an absolute whale of a time talking to Ellie. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ellie Taylor. You said during Show Me the Funny, I talked about doing this podcast. Yes. So I remember, yeah, I just remember, I can't remember on a train, me, you and Tiff, Stevenson, and uh, you were talking about you had this idea for this podcast where you'd interview other comics. And I was like, yeah, that sounds really interesting. As a new comic, I was like, I'd love to, yeah, I'd listen to that. Let's talk about that. I mean, we never get to talk about it on this, and uh, I don't like talking about it myself, (laughs) but uh, I didn't very much enjoy it. Did you, for the the benefit of uh, people uh, who are not familiar with this, I've described it once or twice before. Tell us what it was in your I would describe it. I would say it was like an X Factor for comedy on ITV that uh, no one watched. Um, And it was hosted by Jason Mumford, and it was uh, 10 of us, 10, 10 comics. Uh, And each week we would have to sort of go to a specific situation or location. So one week we'd go to Liverpool, one week we'd hang out with soldiers. You'd hang out with that group of people for a few days and then you'd write, the premise was the comedians would write new five minutes new material and then perform it in front of those people, so Liverpudlian women or soldiers, in front of a panel 
of judges. Now, when I when I say that, <laughs> if I had to do that now, I would shit myself. Okay. But because I was, I'd, I'd only be going less than a year. You know, I was still in a full time job. I'd never been paid for a job, and I quit my job to do this show. And the idea of the pressure the, now knowing that how weird you would never do new material on television like it was such a bonkers weird false format um that it would i would find it very scary i mean i did i was scared when i did it um i lost a lot of weight through pooping because it was just it was terrifying it was quite terrifying but now i think knowing what i know it would be a different sort of terrifying there'd be more sort of to lose but i think because i was so new i was um i, I was lucky in that i got to play the underdog card which I did, and it worked. It worked well. Yes, because you weren't even like a struggling new act, no. or not not struggling. But there were people on it who were in their first couple of years yeah. who had done the odd paid yeah. gig, who were sort of no. a comic now. Yeah, I'd never been paid. I was still yeah. I quit my job in marketing. To, uh, someone just told me about these these auditions on the circuit for this this TV show. I was like, I'll oh, give it a go. Had you done how many gigs had you done by that point? Oh, I could probably I can't remember now, but I would have been able to count them by number at that point. Um, yeah, I had to sort of go. I had to take, say, can I have a long lunch break to go to this weird audition in the middle of the day, where in the comedy pub, you know, that near the comedy store, yes, the pub. Yeah, there was a like downstairs basement, and they you had to do like five minutes topical material in the daytime to other comedians doing this trial gig and some producers. It was awful, and then sort of these different stages of getting through to the show, and then having to make the decision of whether I should quit my job and do it because I would have to have quit, to, you know, for the time. The commitment. Meant and I what were you doing? Job. What was your job in marketing um, at the time? Corporate marketing, marketing events for CNN. Okay. News Channel. So quite what, different. What does corporate marketing events entail? Like, what were you uh, doing? Or like organising trips, golf trips to Abu Dhabi for ad advertising clients. Okay. Um, organising parties, that kind of. Okay. Within, yeah. so you were employed by CNN. So yeah. a job, job, not. Yeah. Not no that. proper okay, job. Got yeah, proper job. So very different. So when I sort of sent out. You know, Ellie's leaving. Oh, what, is she moving? Oh, she's going to do a TV show about being a stand-up comedian. Everyone was like, what the... Where has this come from? I think everyone thought I was bananas. Um, apart from my family. My family didn't. And my, my uh, boyfriend at the time, he's now my husband. They were really cool about it. He was, he's, always, he's always really backed me for some reason. He's always had way more confidence in my abilities than I have. And he's always... When I started... So I, I basically did my first gig because I'd started going out with him and he was 10 years older than me and, um, uh, you know, an international correspondent um, and, you know, really successful and, you know, cool and older and, you know, all of those things. And I was just sort of a silly little girl who worked in marketing. So I thought I'll try some stand-up. I did one gig and he was like, oh, that's really cool. You should do that again. And I, was, I just thought I'd do one gig, ticket off the list sort of thing. But, but just to sort of impress him, I carried on doing it. <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know, it's nuts, isn't it? What, what a message to give to my daughter. Just choose your career by impressing a man. Um, but yeah, so when it came to having to quit my job, he's, he always was like, it was an, for him it's always been an absolute no-brainer that of course I should go into stand-up, which is mental. But he's great, he's great, he's still you, like that now. Did you have, when you said tick it off, did you mm. have any kind of designs on comedy as a younger no. kid? Did you have any, no. were you funny? Yeah, well... You sort of, I think you, people, you obviously have different roles with different friendship groups or di different tribes that you hang around with. Within my family, I was always considered the funny one. 
since I was little. Oh, Ellie, she's so funny. She's so silly. And in what she because she was silly. I'm what, silly. What, yeah. Tell us about funny. Yeah, Ellie, the silly. Kid. What was so it I'm, that you were... I'm I'm the youngest. It's me and my sister. I've got an elder sister who's four years older than me. And I, apparently, I was always funny. And maybe I don't know. Maybe I've lived up to that because that's what was projected onto me. I don't know. But my mum would always say, like, if I was a bit naughty and I get sent upstairs, I would come downstairs and do something funny like I'd put a pillow on my head and walk in backwards like just you know to try and shake things up a bit I suppose to to shift the mood um and my mum's very silly and I I think that silliness was always really encouraged with me at home um but no I never had designs on stand-up I used to I've always I've always performed I've always acted um and I always um I've always really enjoyed writing silly things funny things um but I never put them together until I saw a friend of mine. So um, I was probably 20, 22, 23, and I saw... I know, older, but I was older than that, probably about 25 then. And I saw a friend of mine do stand-up, and I'd been to university with her, and we'd been in, we'd done the same course, and we'd been in the same plays. And I thought, oh, if you can do that, I can do that. It was it, it never occurred to me before as, that, as something that I could do. So from that moment, I put my name down, and then I wrote my set, and then I did it. But having... I think I'd been to one comedy night I think I'd be yeah, one stand-up live comedy night and it was in the the downstairs of the Thistle Hotel in Leicester Square was that an Inky Jones night yes <laughs> oh all him God. all night and that's my that was my only experience of live comedy okay um never really watched that much like now I look back and I'm just so it's so arrogant and but I suppose it's just it's more maybe more ignorant I don't know that I, I thought I could do it when I hadn't really seen any of it. It's Inventing it for yourself is yeah, a really it's not good a, way to In a start, way, yeah, the, 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 the slate's clean, isn't it? So, But, yes, yeah, a very odd way into it all. And so to, let's just talk... Let's just stay with Show Me The Funny just for a mm. sec. One of the frustrations I had was that I kept wanting to say to the judges who were professional comedians, mm. you wouldn't do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't do yeah, new stuff. Yeah, and yeah. kind of touched on it there. Yeah. But that sort of... Um, that naivety that you had, like you said, you were, you were able to be the underdog and you were also, um, you, you, I mean, were you scared of it? Were you scared of the challenge of doing it or did you feel like I've got nothing to lose? I, I think I felt a bit of both. I knew, I suppose I was smart enough to know to play on the underdog card and very much use that. And I did. Um, because, you know, I'd seen enough reality TV to be aware of anything you say in the talking heads. Like, just, you're always on. If there's a microphone on you, you are always on. So just be aware of that. Um, That's really interesting. I had seen next to no reality TV. Uh, if I were to do it again now, having watched 11 seasons of right. Drag Race, <laughs> I'm like, well, a, a, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> but if I did, it'd be a very different yeah. approach. Yeah, and I suppose, I can't remember, but I imagine my husband, who's worked in TV forever, probably would have given me a good pep talk or two beforehand as well so you went into it with a sense of playing the game I knew you have to create your narrative to some point and the the narrative was kind of there in that and it was genuine I I hadn't really done any gigs didn't really know what I was doing so but I I don't know sometimes I wonder if I had it I did have it easier or harder because I I knew other people the premise was new material (laughs) yes twice now that you've said it wasn't about new material. material. The premise the was. The premise was new material, and that's the thing. Now, I had to play by the rules because I had no material. I couldn't yes. use. I didn't have years. I didn't. Ha- sure. I had nothing. So I, every week, I genuinely did do new material. And only in hindsight now, I'm like, well, of course. 
course the others wouldn't have the whole time. You'd be an idiot if you've got all these bankers that you wouldn't roll out. I was that idiot. <laughs> I, to me, it was incredibly important that we did the challenge by the rules. And then it was like, oh, And, right. you know, I remember a conversation, actually. We had a conversation in Liverpool with the producers, <laughs> yeah. and they were like, well, you can use... And you were like, hang on, that's not what, that's not what the that's show's not what about. That's what we signed up yeah, to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, But still, at that point, I'm like, well, I still don't have anything, so I can't... Sure. I can't, I can't sort of flout those rules, so I don't have anything. So a clean slate, like a blank slate rather, mm. the ingenue mm. and an understanding of narrative yeah. that you have to create a Maybe I'm making myself seem more clever than I am. Maybe, in, I think maybe in hindsight but, I'm building it. I don't know. But I, I'm, I think in my head, that's, I, I think I was quite aware. Just knowing that everything you say while the camera's rolling yeah. could be used, even if you stop for a second and kind of do an aside. Yeah. Just knowing that is yeah. an enormous... I mean, it doesn't mean you're Machiavellian. Yeah. So it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean yeah. you're, you know, they're pulling the strings or anything. Just to know that, I think, mm. is really important. Mm. And do you think, had, had that show not come along, You'd have kept. You'd have kept gigging. Mm, yeah, I think because so. you you've done enough to yeah, know that this yeah, is really fun. Yeah. And did you did you have a sense as someone who's worked in marketing? That always I, I, that's very interesting to me because in the first ten years of my career, I had no concept of marketing, and it felt like a dirty word. It was like mm. as applied to stand up. Yeah. I think of you now as someone who has a very confident brand. Oh, do you? Yeah, I do. And I, I don't mean that to be insulting. I probably, if no, I had I said that sentence six, seven years ago no, no. to someone, or I, I wouldn't yeah. have said it. Yeah. But I, I feel like you really know who you are and what you're projecting and who are you talking to. That's so funny because I, I feel totally the opposite. Do you? Yeah. Do you? Or is this you uh, no, wielding a narrative? No, I really do. I think, you know, you've got to find your voice. I still don't really feel like I know what that is, really. I sort of I, if I think of a topic, I'm like, how do how do I approach this? I don't I don't know. I don't know how I approach it. What do you know about your voice? Um, I suppose I know what I enjoy. I enjoy uh, being silly. I enjoy doing like overacting and doing silly faces and For silly the voices. Benefit of the listener, Ellie's doing a very convincing vehicle <laughs> reversing noise. <laughs> um, uh, Sorry, so being silly, overacting. Yeah, silly, va- silly faces, silly voices. All pretty, it's all like quite clowny, really. I suppose. Um, I have, I enjoy talking about, I enjoy, it and I have to talk about myself because I am not clever enough to be, you know, to go delve deep into politics. Mm-hmm. For instance, that's really not my bag. Um, whenever I try, it doesn't it's just it just doesn't naturally fit. I would say, mm-hmm. for me. Um, so, yeah, my stuff's always autobiographical and always pretty light and breezy. Whenever I've tried to make a point, I've never been able to. <laughs> how, how does that, how do you feel doing something like Mock the Week when there's like a kind of topical Yeah, feel to it? that's you... when I have to be, I have to get my head in gear to, you know, I have to be, I'm, I, you know, I watch the news and I'm, you know, I read the papers and stuff, but I'm not in it and I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not as satirist, you know, I'm aware of that about myself. Um, so I have to sort of knuckle down and the week before I'll sort of just prick my ears up a bit and try and be a bit more on it. Um, but then there are other elements of that show that I, so maybe the, like, the political stuff wouldn't naturally be something that I would super enjoy. But then there's um, there's always the lighter stories, which are always good fun. And the end, the scenes we'd like to see. So, you know, scenes, we things you never hear in a horror movie, for instance. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff I really love because it's just fun. And again, it's silly. And it's exactly. kind of goofball license, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really enjoy that bit. And in terms of, um, and I'm trying not to say the brand again, but I'm going to. Um, the brand, it, yeah. In terms of the brand, <laughs> um, 
Do you think that part of it is the interplay between the goofiness and the fact that you are a tall, attractive... You, did you used to be a model? You done I some did, modeling? Yeah, 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 I felt like that. Yeah. Um, so you're kind of model good-looking... But being goofy and rangy, and you know, you've got a big mouth, and you're, you know what I mean? You're doing fun mm. shapes with your face. Yeah. Do you think that's part of the. I don't know. Yeah, I suppose people wouldn't, if you say you used to be a model, they maybe have certain preconceptions about you. And when I think if people come, if that's all someone knew about me, and then they come to see my sh- sh- live show, they'd, people have mentioned, actually, now that other performers have mentioned like my physicality, which is something that I don't think they would naturally. You're very, you've got great spidery I'm arms. very gangly. Oh, <laughs> way too many arms and legs. Um, but yeah, I really I enjoy playing it. I enjoy being sort of, you know, ugly and wool and turning weird. And I like, I like all that sort of stuff. You're, you, um, you have a good command of grotesquerie. Oh, That's something you. I wrote down because I, was no, I noticed a spell check on my phone didn't, uh, uh, didn't, didn't recognise the word grotesquerie, <laughs> but it is a word. Do you know, someone said I was doing an acting thing last week and someone said, oh, you've got funny fingers. Oh, I love like oh, yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Okay, Thanks, okay. And that, I think that that is certainly lifted by the fact that you um, just purely... I think of you as some... You're in the kind of Joel Domit mould, really. Right. You know, this person is so attractive and confident that they don't need to do stand-up comedy. He's kind of a... Like, no one was attractive doing comedy in the 90s. <laughs> Sorry, 90s comedians. <laughs> there, were, there were people who were former models doing comedy in the 90s. Right. I don't know. Do you know what... I, I do find interesting is that quite often if I talk about people, they all they often bring up the modelling thing. Um, and I don't know, I think it's still, for some reason, it seems re- a, confounding that, an, you know, an all right looking girl can also be funny. For some reason, that seems quite, I don't know, people can't seem to get their head around it. And I'm like, oh, my God, I like model for a bit. And I put makeup on. Like, it's really... I don't know why that's so jarring with the fact that I might be a good stand-up. Um, as to why I ended up doing stand-up, I suppose I don't look at it from uh, from an appearance point of view. I don't look at it. But I do look, I do wonder why I've ended up doing stand-up when I've had such a lovely life. Because I've got a wonderful relationship with my parents and my sister. Uh, wonderful time at school. Really enjoyed it. Did very well. <laughs> University, fantastic. Got first. Smashed it. I've, I've, I've done, I've been so lucky in my life. I do not understand why I'm clearly something, what in me needs this weird approval in this painful, awful job. <laughs> is, it, is it painful and awful? Yes, it is. What are the painful bits? Um, I just find it so hard. <laughs> They're like, I have such a love-hate relationship with stand-up. Like, it, 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 it destroys me. But when it goes well, it's wonderful and magical. I have, I have, oh yeah, I really, I really struggle with my relationship with stand up because, like, I'm, I'm writing a new show at the moment, and um, I think maybe it's the thought of having to write a new hour is more horrible than the actual act of it. Once I get down to writing it and I get down to previewing it, it's there are points, as you know, that can be the fun, the most fun bit, can't it? Like when you're playing around and you're playing with ideas and you're sort of shifting things around. Um, but I don't know, there were times like in Edinburgh, I, I hate Edinburgh, it's just so not for me. There's so many aspects of comedy that are not for me. I don't like working evenings, don't like working weekends, find myself really bad at holding conversations with other comics. Um, because... I just, I, I always, I've, I've always, 
felt like I don't belong. I've always thought people don't think that I belong. And I think it's because also when I started stand up, I had I had such a like I said, I've I've got you know good relationship with my family. Had a lovely solid group of friends. Was going out with my now husband. I had every part. I didn't I didn't need anyone else. So I didn't hang out. I didn't you know. You know, new comics start and they form and they, you know, go to gigs and they sort of really grow up together. I never did that because I would do a gig and go home because I I didn't need anything. And I was also working a day job as well, so you just, you know, get on with that life. So I don't think I ever really grounded myself in the circuit like some people, a lot of people do. Um, and I just think it's um, just ed- the Edinburgh small talk is, I find I get so socially anxious, like it drives me the idea of walking down a road and seeing other comics and you having to stop and talk to them, I can't, like, I'm, I cringe inside. All I think is how I can get out of the conversation. I hate it. And I, I think I just feel intimidated. I feel like I don't belong. Um, yeah, and, like, a green room would be is my worst nightmare sometimes. Presumably you are now in those situations, green rooms. I think now I feel better because I, when I... It feels like my peers. So, for instance, when I, would first, when I first did Mock the Week, I suppose I didn't really know the people on the show. But having worked with them a few times, it's just generally, it obviously gets less scary. Um, and you feel like, you feel increasingly like you belong. I'm always more happy when you're familiar with someone, but, oh, you know, that's, everyone is. Um, but, yeah, I find, oh, I just find, I find that aspect of comedy tricky, the people. Is that because comedians are broadly awful? no. No, I wouldn't like to say that. I mean, some of them are, but like every, parts of every group are awful. Um, I think it's 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 my it's my insecurities, and I think you know when I get in, I don't know, like a car share with people talking about. Oh, do you remember that? Oh, that Bill Hicks bit about whatever, and oh, that Monty Python sketch. I'm like, I don't have. I don't, like I've said, I just sort of burst into comedy so I could show off to my husband. I don't have this encyclopedic knowledge, and I feel like that's a I don't have that. I don't have anything to offer in that regard. So I just sort of sit there mute, thinking, "Oh God." And that's why I suppose that sort of underlines the fact that I feel like I don't, I don't belong. Just massive imposter syndrome. It's that's so interesting because I feel all those things. I feel like I don't belong. I feel Are you like kidding? Yeah, oh, a hundred percent. That's oh partly. That's where, yeah, yeah, partly. That's where this podcast originated from. Was a wanting to um uh, learn how to be a better comedian yeah. and b wanting to kind of uh, uh what's the word uh rot what's the other what's the sense of what's the present tense of rot I don't know it can't be right can it <laughs> <laughs> um to to reek <laughs> is it reek i think it's reek Go on. um to create some sort of community some sense of community because right. i felt so rootless i felt oh, like really? yeah absolutely at, at edinburgh i um uh, I had my street performer buddies, which right. in themselves were an attempt to ring a community mm, from a mm. ring, reek, I don't know, <laughs> to, to, to get a sense of community. And that's really interesting. Oh, but I, I feel some of those things that you're talking about, the social anxiety. I think all of us, most of us feel like imposters, mm. surely. Mm-hmm. Where do you think that comes from, in your case, as someone who had a great family life and a great I wonder schooling and all if the it's it? because... I think in generally in life I'm quite socially anxious, so that's just sort of a, a natural, um, a natural effect of that. But also, I wonder if it's because the the way I went into comedy, because I got onto telly very quickly before I was ready. I was getting booked for gigs, gigs after Show Me the Funny, not like amazing ones, but ones I wasn't ready to do yet. 
you know, I remember getting booked a few months after that, getting booked to do half an hour, cor- uh, half an hour corporate. Like, as we've established, I had no material. So God knows what I said. I wouldn't want to do a half an hour corporate now. And I've been going nine years. So um, it was that kind of thing. I suppose that maybe knocked me back a bit because I was get doing things before you're ready is not good. And when you're crashing and burning at them or when you're getting Not always, but sometimes I did and it really shook me. It really did. Like I remember I did, um, oh, I got booked to do eight out of ten cats quite early on. And I, uh, to be fair, actually, I, I'd got through, I went through the proper audition process and I did all the, you know, the run-throughs and stuff. But I got to the uh, the live the live show and um, my agent, I was like, um, I said, oh, other people get writers, do I need writers? And they, actually, I'm, that's not true. I don't think they said that. Basically, no one told me that other people get writers. Maybe you should get a writer if it's your first panel show. No one told me that. So I which just sounds so stupid now, but I went and I didn't, you know, other people had stuff prepared. I had stuff prepared, but it was all stuff that I'd written, which was fine, but I didn't have any other help. No one who'd done a panel show to help, you know, to, to guide me. And I'm sure lots of other people don't, but for me, I think I could have really done with that. And I think just even walking onto the TV set, that the set of uh, 8 out of 10 Cats, and in the studio and there's all the people and the lights, and it was, I was like, oh, shit, this is terrifying, and I did not feel ready um and I remember I did it and I did fine but I remember in the halfway mark like there was a break or something Jimmy Carr came up to me and was like um said are you all right and I was like oh fuck he's seen that I'm not doing very well and that's what he's suggesting and then that really threw me after that I was like oh god I don't know I just think the rest of it was a blur and uh that really that kind of thing really scarred me because I, I just felt like I'd, I felt like I was, I was shit. I felt like I'd been shit, and I was shit at this new job. And then I was suddenly I'd quit. I'd quit this grown up job to, to do show me the funny, and then show me the funny finished, and I was just suddenly alone all day in the house. I didn't know what to do. And now I'm I'm lucky enough that I work a lot, so I'm I don't I'm do, I'm not sitting around in my pants all the time. But at that point, I didn't have the work coming in. I was just there, like hoping that it would do. I then got a bit depressed at that point because it was it was very different going from a nine to five to suddenly being a stand-up comedian when I'd never been, never paid for a gig. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe my, my, my formative stand-up years were scarred me and maybe that's given me more imposter syndrome than, um, yeah, than I would have had otherwise. I wonder, given that you are, you're, you're definitely a, whatever the opposite of an imposter, you're a poster now. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You're, you're in the gang. You're, but you I know, still you're feel like... the Apollo. No, I know. This is the thing. And I, I sometimes think to myself... I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can do it. Oh, I don't know why I've got that job. And then I'm like, hang on a minute. At some point, I have to just look at what I've done and be like, don't be a dick. Like, you've done all of... Look what you did last year. You had an amazing year last year. You, yeah, you hosted... That was my aim. I really... I said at the beginning of the year, I want to host Live at the Apollo. I want to do it pregnant. Um, that's That was my aim. And I did it. And it went really well. But sometimes I... And I did... And I, I just had a great year. And I, I just... Sometimes I forget that and you sort of lose where you are in the, in the day-to-day or you have a bad, oh, I did a preview, didn't go well, oh, I'm an awful job, oh, I can't do this, I just want to work in Cafe Nero. Um, and then you, I, I do have to remind myself, I think everyone could do with that, just looking back on your past achievements. There's, um, I, sometimes I go to do, um, I give out uh, gold Duke of Edinburgh awards, Ooh, 
why do I do that? Um, so I can take my family to Buckingham Palace? Sure. Um, <laughs> but when you're there and you're giving out awards to these teenagers who are very disappointed you're not someone from Game of Thrones, um, you have to give a speech. And in the speech, <laughs> the kids don't give a shit. But I always get quite emotional because I'm sort of speaking to kids who are like 18 to 20 and I sort of talk about... Um, it's meant to be like an inspirational speech. So I talk about what I've done and how I got there. And it always makes me go, it makes me a bit emotional because I'm like, oh, I've done really well. <laughs> well done, me. Well done, me. And there's, um, there's, a, there's a quote in it. I think it's Oprah. I can't fucking remember it. But it, it's uh, the best indicator of the future is the past. And I think that is so true. And I think if ever I have doubts about my abilities, I do just have to look and go, look at all the things you've done. You've you can do this. You can do this. You do this. Stop being a dick. But I also wonder if me panicking and flapping about my abilities, is. Uh, my agent said this, maybe it's part of my process. Maybe I have to flap. Maybe I have to say, I can't do this, I can't do this. Do this. That's just a stage I have to go through before I, and I get that all out of my system and then I do it and it's fine. Do you, does that seem like a sort of life sentence though? Yeah. Like, oh, it's part of my process. Yeah, sorry. I'm good. So I'm going to feel uh, like this every day. I think year. I tell my husband that and he was like, are you fucking kidding me? He, he despairs because he has to give me the same sort of motivational talks, you know, just on, on repeat. And he's, he, I think he just, he can't bear my, my worry and flapping and anxiety. And he's just like, I don't know where it comes from. Just get a grip and get on with it. Poor guy. It's quite horrible being married to a comic, I think. No comic. <laughs> <laughs> So this is Ellie. As I said, her tour starts on the 26th of September. So go to ellietaylorcomedy.com to find out everything you need to know about that. It's going to be all over the place, predominantly in the south, but she is going as far north as uh, Salford, Cambridge and Norwich. Now, I've got some tour details for you, my, my sweet friends. Uh, the second leg of my tour of End Of, which is the uh, Edinburgh show from 2018, which will be on tour in most instances with a second half with a bunch of new material in it, some of it from Primer, some of it even newer than that. Um, I am going on tour to the following places. Um, the 2nd of October, I'm at the Glasgow Stand. I love it. The 5th of October, I'm at the Edinburgh Stand. I love it equally. The 5th of October, I'm also... No, I'm not. No, <laughs> that's a typo. On the 6th of October, I'm in Aberdeen. They're two hours and 40 minutes away by train. It would be... I mean, impressive if I managed to do both. Glasgow stand, Edinburgh stand, Aberdeen Comedy Festival. Can't wait for that. Uh, on the 11th of October, I'm back at the Northampton Royal and Derngate. It's been sold out every time I've done it. I love that little room so much. Please come and see us uh, if you're anywhere near Northampton. I always have a load of fun there. The Tynmouth Pavilions, uh, the 25th of October. I've never done a tour show there before, but someone has a gig there, and I did it recently, and I walked off, and it was one of those ones where I probably, uh, in my in the notes on, you know, I record all the shows, and then I'll name them afterwards, things like, oh, a smasher, or yeah, you should listen back to it, there was one good gag, or, oh, God, delete this immediately. And I think I probably wrote something after a gig in Tynmouth that was entitled something like, this is why you wanted to be a comedian. <laughs> I mean, it was really... If anything, my expectations for the gig at Tynmouth Pavilions on the 25th of October are way too high and I can only disappoint both you and myself. I can't wait for that. Swindon Arts Centre on the 26th. Uh, that's always... I mean, that was lovely. I say always. I've done it precisely once and it was great. Nottingham Glee on the 4th of November. Birmingham Glee on the 5th of November. They're both loads of fun. I am back at my spiritual home, the Comedy Box uh, at the Hen and Chicken in Bristol uh, on the 8th of November. 
on the 4th of December. I mean, it's my other spiritual home. I've never had a bad gig at Aldershot. That's hexed that one. I'll be at the West End Centre on the 4th of December. And then at the Pound Arts Centre, lovely little theatre in Caution, on the 25th of January next year. And then on the 1st of February, the Newcastle Stand. I mean, we're pinging all around the place here, but we're fitting it in around some other fun things. And then the 2nd of October, the Glasgow Stand. Now, that's come up twice, which makes me think one of them's a mistake. In fact, ignore the first one. I'll take it off the website. I'm not at the Glasgow Stand until the 2nd of February. Jesus Christ. The 7th of February next year, the Farnham Maltings uh, in the homeland of my wife. And uh, it sounds like a musical. I should be appearing at the Farnham Maltings in the homeland of my wife. And finally, the last show is the 28th of February at Cambridge at the Junction. Now, if you saw me last time I toured at the Cambridge Junction, uh, we sold it out three years running. I love performing there. And this year we're moving up to the big room. So please, Cambridge, come out in your droves. Uh, we've got lots of times to sell it. But if you are anywhere near Cambridge or... What's near Cambridge? Cambridgeshire? Um, Nor- Norfolk-ish? I'm not going to Norwich, so if you want to see me, maybe Cambridge is your, your best choice. Basically, anyone near there, we're doing a big... We're doing... I'm now officially doing a big push for dates in Cambridge because I don't want the move to the big room to represent anything other than a steady career incline. It would be a terrible shame if I ended up releasing a micro-episode after that gig, uh, the finale of the tour, entitled Hubris, Thy Name is Stuart. So listen, uh, I, I can't wait. I'm so looking forward to all of those. I'm really, I'm back in the office today. I had a fantastic Edinburgh Fringe. I had a great holiday with my family and, and my wife's family as well. And um, uh, I'm just full of vim and so stoked about those dates, notwithstanding the confusion about when Glasgow is. Basically, comedianscomedian.com slash tour Get yourself to that. I won't tell you all of those dates and times again, but I'll remind you of that at the end of this episode. And also, please go and see Ellie on tour, uh, because it's her we're talking about. And two, let's get back to Ellie Taylor. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's just talk a little bit more about who you who you are to us, us the audience. Um, you, I think, you're from Brentwood, mm. and uh, you, I think, combine a sort of. I'm not going to use the term Essex girl, but you're from Essex, yes, and you've got great material about going out with your mates, drinking too much, all the. Do you know what I mean you've got like almost in the way that Mickey Flanagan combines? I'm erudite, but I'm also 
you know, a former Billingsgate fish market porter. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? There's like you can right. you can play to both audiences. Do you do you recognise in the people that come to see you, do you recognise they are a particular type of person or is it across it, do you the know, it's such a mix now because I've done I've done so many different things and I do so many different things. It's a real mix. So I'll have people who used to um, watch um, Snog Mary Void, um, like a makeover show I did years ago. Then I'll have people who um, will have seen me on something like Apollo or um, The Mash Report or Radio 4 stuff. Um, so there's a real mix. And, as, you know, I did a show, an, can I say an awful show? It was an awful show. Um, and I, it, that's an example of saying yes to things when you're offered and you shouldn't have. Okay. That's another thing uh, that I have learned along the way. But, um, but you have you have learned that because you had the opportunity. Like whenever anyone says you shouldn't say yes to things, I remember Phil Jupiter saying, "If you want to be on telly, you've got to be one of the people who's on telly." Yeah. So you've got to say yes yeah, to everything on I telly mean, because true. then you're one of the people that's on telly. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. And people always say you re- on your deathbed you'll regret the things you didn't do rather than the things you did. Uh, I don't know if that's true in regards to awful panel shows, but. Uh, um, I forgot what we were talking. You were talking about. about the audience. Um, oh yes, so yeah, a real a real mix of people. Um, I think now it's interesting you say about going out and drinking friends and stuff. I suppose I, that was probably from a few years ago, and now I think as a comic you have to sort of go through you go through material like as you grow up. So you go initially, you sort of have to everything gets washed out. So you, you do stuff about what you look like, where you come from, that gets washed away. And then you sort of, you know, you delve deeper and deeper and deeper, don't you, into stuff. And then like so I've I've spoken about wanting to get married. I've spoken about being married. I've spoken about if I want a baby and now I'm at the point where I've had a baby and my new show's about um being a mum. So um yeah, I suppose it's it's just part of the process. So now it won't be about going out and drinking with friends because I just sit at home and watch Flog It. <laughs> sure, but I suppose what I mean is you are the stuff you talk about. Like for all you say, you feel like an outsider. Right. I feel like you talk about very relatable things. Right, but I think that's because I don't have the ability to talk about anything more erudite. I can't, you know, as much as I would love to be as clever as Nish, I can't be. You know, I'm, that's not just not my thing. So it's not like I'm. It's not like a really a smart choice for me to talk about relatable things what I've got <laughs> I, I suppose well, I, I feel like I'm halfway towards what I'm getting at I think you are an incredibly relatable person to a mass audience right do you know oh. what I mean in the way that I feel like I'm not really? <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely because I like I like jokes about manticores and if I want to tell a joke about a manticore which is a mythological creature I first right. have to explain what a manticore is <laughs> do you know what I mean so right. I, I feel like I'm I feel like an outsider to the world probably in a different way than you feel like an outsider right right I don't know quite what point I'm making but I think you <laughs> like I, do you find in your in your writing process that you are making decisions based on what you think they'll go for? No. Or are you making decisions purely about what you want to talk about? Yeah, me. I have to be me. I would never... Yeah, I can... Again, I'm not clever enough to second-guess what people may or may not like. I think my process is write it all down and see what shit sticks. And I, I have to write a lot of shit before anything sticks. Like, I think... I just... I, what I love about the way I do... I write and the the thing I despair at the same time is that every time I write I go oh this is so good <laughs> this is the best and then of course I go and try it out and 75 to 
80% of it is absolute rubbish. But at the time of writing it, you obviously you only write it if you think it's good. Um, and I think that's in a way that's really sweet that I still have that hope. <laughs> really misplaced hope. But yeah, I don't, I, I, I still, I, I would have thought by now my radar would be sharper for what is a good joke and what isn't a good joke. And I still don't think that's very as sharp as I would like it to be. And okay. there were still bits that I find people find really funny and I don't really understand why. Go on, give of, us an example. I can't, no, you say I can't think of anything, but then there's, or you know, just the way an in, some intonation will change something. And you're like, what? Why is that? Well, you laugh. I don't know. Fine, we'll go with that if it's funny. <laughs> um, it's just a bit of a weird, I don't know, science project sometimes, isn't it? You said, um, you said there that one of the things you love about writing, and it suddenly struck me that, gosh, we rarely talk about on the podcast, it really comes up the phrase, the love of writing. You know, mm. a lot of people either re- regard it as a, a job at which they have to be efficient or a sort of a tragic consequence of the lifestyle they want to live. <laughs> I think I'm more like one of those. Like, I, I, I don't really... I don't feel like I love writing. I feel like I struggle with it. It's almost like I've decided, ah, oh, life's a struggle and writing right. comedy is a struggle. Yeah. And you, it's really sort of refreshing and uh, it's kind of almost painful to hear someone talk about loving writing. Yeah, but that again, it's, it's, uh, it's one, uh, the idea of writing, like having, I have to sit down and write a new show, that's horrible and feel, you know, hangs over me like a cloud. But once I get down to it, if I get in the right zone, if my phone's in another room, at points I've unplugged the Wi-Fi, I put apps on my computers to block sites that I would just dick around on for hours. If I get into that, I mean, it takes me a long time to get into that. Again, sort of part of my process is twatting around for hours probably going on facebook oh i need to order a new set of curtains i'll do that's perfect time to do that now once i get that all out of the system and i get into writing i do enjoy it i do really enjoy it what i enjoy more than i I, I probably enjoy more purely writing things like uh like i suppose like if i could write i'd love to write a book that's the written word Mm. i really enjoy and i love playing with language and i think i'm i wonder if i'm better so no, I just think writing, write, writing to be read as opposed to writing to perform. Of it's probably easier, things. isn't it? That's what I think. <laughs> I'm like, the hit rate doesn't have to be as high. You can just be vaguely amusing. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to be vaguely amusing for life. Um, I really enjoy that. I've always enjoyed language um, and, and, yeah, and playing with it. And I think that's me and my husband, we sort of courted over email. And again, he's a journalist. He loves words. And I think we sort of, we fell in love with writing with each other's words and playfulness and stuff with that kind of thing. So it's a big part of me. So, yeah, I do enjoy that bit. But, um, yeah, just the hit rate is not as high as I would like. Do you have any other kind of, like, tips or not not tricks so much, but kind of, like, little things you do to pick yourself back up when it's not working or systems, anything like that, that you've found particularly useful? Uh, on stage, do you mean? Uh, or, or in, in the, general? In the... Writing process. Um, I've always got... I always have... As, every, as often people will say, they'll have notes on their phone that if they hear something funny, see something funny, just jot it down. Um, and that's always really useful because even if you've got no ideas, you can just sort of go through there and there'll be something. I think going back to old stuff can be quite interesting sometimes as well to sort of spark new ideas off that or developing stuff you've never quite managed. Um, and on stage, I think if things... I think, first of all, things never go as badly as you think and things never go as great as you think. If you listen back... I record my previews, so I'll always listen back, which is very painful. And again, I will put that off for as long as I can. But once I'm in it, 
is so helpful. And I think if you really want to progress, you have to. For me, anyway. I know some people, they would hate to do that. They wouldn't. But I'm, I'm very... I was always a very good student and I think that's how I approach stand-up. So I will write it down. I will practice it like, you know, hairbrush and mirror. I'll practice it um, uh, and I will listen back and I will make notes and I sort of approach it like an essay, I suppose, really. And I try and I, and I, I love, this sounds the driest thing ever in regards to comedy, but I really, I really enjoy the fl- sort of formatting. Like I like, I like structure. I love structure. I love working out how that's all going to link up, how it's all going to be cyclical, how that callback can pull that in. And, you know, that and when everything's tied up neatly at the end, I get real satisfaction from that. Um, so I think um, that's how I approach it. But I know that's very different to other comics. So some, a lot of, you know, my friends in comedy will be like, they write on stage. Just take that idea up and write, just have, say it, have a play with it on stage. Terrifying. I find that, I would never do that. Never, never do that. Um, I'm trying to be increasingly more free with the previews I'm doing for this show. Um, I do uh, I do a lot of work with um, Robin Morgan. He's a great comic. Um, he's a great writer. And uh, we've done some double bill um, previews together. And uh, I'll go on first, sort of saying my stuff. And I mean, the first few, I'd had, you know, loads of time off. Well, not loads, a few months off having the baby, having my baby. And I haven't been on stage for ages. I was very sort of rigid and I was holding my notes and I was um, mic and stand, which I never usually do. I usually hold the mic. Um, so if your mic's are standing, you're holding notes, immediately I can't use the physicality that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. So it feels, it's weird anyway. Um, I just felt very stilted. I really didn't enjoy it. And I sort of stayed to watch Robin. And he uses his previews in such a clever way that I've never, never thought of before. I think sometimes I get in my brain how, how something should be. And I'm like, oh, oh, you're allowed to do previews in a different, of course you are. So the way he does it and the way I'm, I'm increasingly trying to do it is, is literally like sort of, he's just... If something doesn't work, he references how awful it is. If uh, something does work, he sort of, oh, do you like that bit? Oh, just, oh does, does anyone, um, oh, can anyone think of any examples about that? Do you do ever do, do you know what I mean? He uses, it's like crowdsourcing it. And it makes it so much more fun and free. If you don't give as much of a shit, if I'm not tired staring at a bit of paper, I enjoy it more. And it's <laughs> such a cliche, isn't it? But if I enjoy it more, everyone enjoys it more. We all have a better time if it's freer. And they've, they've been really joyful since I've tried, tried to sort of stop being so anal about it. I've enjoyed it more. And I think I could probably try and do that a bit more in my uh, stand-up life. I think I find uh, I'm, much, <laughs> I'm much freer on Instagram stories, <laughs> which is actually which is something I really enjoy. If I could have a whole career out of doing, dicking around on Instagram stories, that I would really enjoy. I've seen some of your Instagram stories, and I think, uh, in as much as I understand how to view an Instagram <laughs> story, I feel, I feel like there's a thing I've seen. Um, the way you use Instagram, you seem to have a really innate, like a, a native grasp of Instagram. I'm good at Instagram. I'm not good at Twitter. Tell me what it means to you to be, what do you mean you're good at Instagram? I just think I enjoy it. Again, I enjoy it. So I'm happy to play around with it. I think Twitter just seems a bit scary. And like you just sort of I don't I don't want to get involved in that. Thanks very much. Too much. Um, Instagram is just fun, and I feel like I can be silly. It encourages my silliness, and I enjoy it. I get a bit too into it sometimes, and I delete it off periodically just to give myself a break. Um, but uh, yeah, I just really enjoy it, and I think it's a good way. I mean, it's it's a good in a in a, uh, a cynical way. It's a good marketing platform because it's literally you're shouting about yourself. Um, but it's just a good way to engage with people. And I think it, it, you can see, it's funny, you can see um, the way I have it set up because I'm, 
I don't know what I'm a business or whatever on it. You can see how many people follow you and how many people unfollow you. Um, and when I first got that, I used to get a bit disheartened. I got that person, oh, did that person, 47 people unfollowed me. But then I, I, I increasingly just try and think of it as it's just streamlining. So the people who stay with you really want to hear your stuff and see your stuff. Yeah. Because when I had my baby for a while when I was at home, I did a lot of stuff about having a baby because guess what? That's what I was doing. Like, you know what I mean? I had nothing else. So I felt a bit like, oh God, am I doing too much baby stuff? And I'm like, no, this is your life. If people don't like it, they can... They'll unfollow you, and that's that's fine. It's like if you send out a mail shot to your mailing list, oh, and, and you of get people un- unsubscribe, oh. and you just think that's great. You don't want to be marketing to no, people who don't exactly, aren't interested in listening exactly. to you. So I try and think of it like that now. Something else I've noticed, just having a, a quick glance over your Instagram feed, mm. is that there is a really interesting and, I suppose, very contemporary thing going on at the moment of. Um, of you being very glamorous and sparkling on TV mm. or looking great in things and then kind of like no makeup, no filter mm. kind yeah. of stuff of you being really real. And I think that's part of that's a part of your your persona that you wield really well. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because you're there is there's like um there is some distance between those things. You can go, this is my public face, mm. this is my private face. Yeah. And there's a big difference between them. Yeah. And I suppose that's what the internet feeds off. Yeah. Do you think? I think uh, people increasingly like... um, uh, What's the word? Well, things that are genuine. So if I... You know, I don't have makeup on every day and I look like shit a lot of the time. And I'm not going to... I'd say probably 80% of my Instagram stories are in my red fleecy dressing gown. Like that's just what it is, and yeah, I, and I like that stuff. I'm not, I don't care if people see me. I don't, I'm, I'm not that bothered about. Well, I'm not bothered about the the brand of being some a glamorous lady on the telly because I'm not that most most of my life. That's the absolute exception when I have fake eyelashes on, um, and I'm very happy not, you know, to not pretend that that's real the whole time. But, but do you think that's that is almost that's the brand, isn't it? The, like that's a successful thing on Instagram is to go, hey guys, I'm not inverted commas the brand, right? I'm right, real. Oh, right. You know I mean? That's I, the I, brand. Yeah, and the I don't br- mean that oh, in a disingenuous right, right. way, but I think that the brand is, oh. I am a, a sassy, you know, girl in the world with fake eyelashes. Yeah. And also, this is. Did you say fake eyelashes? I don't yeah, know. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm How dare accusing you? you. <laughs> um, but but I'm also revealing beneath that. It's actually, guys. It's just me. It's yeah. like almost like with one. You're turning to the camera on one side and going "Hello world," right. and then you're turning to Instagram on the other side and saying "Hello world," right? And that's the brand nowadays, right? Do you think? Yeah, maybe, maybe. I hadn't really thought about it like that. I suppose I hadn't thought about that bit of the me being relatable as. Because that's what you do on stage as well. You come on looking super glam in your glitzy top. Yeah. And then you do a kind of spider yeah. leggy kind of <laughs> like, do you mean? like that grotesquery. Yeah. Yeah. Or talking about um, that stuff you did about having a pap smear. Oh, right. Yeah. Which is, again, it's, it's like one of those things you can't, I can't really imagine a British comic talking about that 20 years ago. Right, yeah. You, f- you feel like a very contemporary comedian. Right. In that you are attractive and TV ready and, and kind of... I don't just mean TV radio. But you mean you're glamorous? Is that I think what I'm saying? In a way that not that many other. I suppose it's Catherine Ryan, and who are the other kind of glamorous female comedians? Well, I think they all well, us. Us women have to glam up annoyingly for telly a lot of the time. I just remember where some of this comes from. During Show Me the Funny, mm. we had a conversation about, or you. There was some. You were given feedback by a judge about needing to dress down. 
Do you remember that? Yeah, or someone said I wouldn't wear... Yeah, well, I wore heels. I can't remember who it was. It's one of the judges, one of the celebrity judges, or whoever they were, said... Yeah. Um, I, can't, I can't remember what it was. Something came up, but I remember us talking about it because I think someone had said, if you want to get... You know, you don't want to intimidate the women in the audience by being too attractive. Right. And you were going to, you know, justifiably have the hunt with them. Right. Yeah, I can't remember. I remember... I, remember, I, think, it was Joe, I think it was Joe Brown said that she was worried about my heel. I was wearing high heels. Okay. I think that was what that was. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, women dressing for stand-up is another whole different kettle of fish. I've gone through stages where I've, like, actively tried to dress down and then now, you know, if I'm at a tour show, I'll dress up because, like, it's a night it's a night out. Why wouldn't you dress I don't know, it's a whole another load of bollocks, isn't it? I just think the difference... There are still differences for men and women in the business and... Yeah, and I think, I don't know. Like I said, it's, I think it's funny that people focus on how I look, how that, why that's even such a big topic in, any, in regards to whenever I talk to anyone. I think that's weird. And I think that, you know, all the girls, and, all the girls on telly dress up, you know. You look, everyone always looks gorgeous on Mock the Week because they've had hair and makeup and they have to go and buy a nice outfit because you have to. It's just you can't just wear a shirt because it's just different pressures. Um, and you like, yeah, Sarah Pascoe always looks gorgeous. Tiff Stevenson, Angela Barnes was it's lovely. Like everyone, everyone has to put on, you put on the slap because you're going on telly. It's really annoying when you have to buy a new outfit. I suppose I, I posted something on the, the ComCom Facebook group recently about I'm doing a, a two TV spots abroad later on this year and I've got no idea what to wear and I freak out every fucking time about what to right. wear. And on this Facebook post I did, there was like 150 comments, which I haven't, I'm too scared to look at them. Yeah, right, right. I, haven't properly, <laughs> I haven't properly got to grips with it because everyone's got an opinion and I'm sure they're all super helpful. I've kind of glanced at it, but I feel like it's, one, it's a job on my list now to sit down and look at everyone's advice right. because I feel so disempowered by it. A couple of people have said, get your colours done and I've had to go what does what? that mean oh my god <laughs> that know. sounds so 80s well, yeah. I did, well I think it's something to do with a colour chart no, I mean, where someone do you know what that is what? I've only heard of it from like magazines from the 80s oh, fine. Like, okay. yeah, maybe yeah, I shouldn't no. worry about no. that okay. um, but I uh, so I but I think the thing is I find it very disempowering and it's quite a weird thing I feel a bit funny admitting it because as a man I'm not supposed to I think I'm not supposed to care or it's right. not supposed to come up yeah well, it's, it's another concern. It's a weird concern, isn't it? When, you, when you're on telly, your jokes aren't enough. You have, to, you have to look a certain way, partly to feel good enough to do your jokes well. Yeah. yeah. Like you said, if you go on stage and you know you look good and you feel good. It's another thing you've got to worry about. Yeah, for sure. If you've got a haircut that was done 10 days ago, so it doesn't look like a new haircut. Uh, <laughs> I learned that. I was like, yeah, that's yeah, how I do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So, what is your favourite bit that you've ever done? What's your What's your bit that you are the most proud of? Um, I really, I really like um, the ending to my last show, which was it, my last show was all about whether I should have a child or not, and uh, it was just, it was I, I felt it was really cute. I thought it was really sweet and quite moving. For me, again, this is like me talking to myself. <laughs> I thought it was really moving. And um, and it just had loads of callbacks. I love an ending with the shitloads of callbacks. So I found it very satisfying. Um, that doesn't really help because it's not really a specific thing I can talk about, is it? Uh, 
So, but it was satisfying in that kind of homework kind of way. Yeah, I suppose I did like the the, uh, the smear test bit that you spoke about earlier. I, mm. I liked because it, it had a point for once, uh, kind of loosely, and it was uh, funny. I, yeah, I do like sort of kind of making people feel a bit uncomfortable. I enjoy that bit. What? Why? Don't know. I usually pick on a guy in the audience, and through the whole through the way through the show, that they're the person I'm sort of they're my stooge. I just enjoy that. I mean, it's power. I don't know. Just being mean, isn't it? But I'd like. It's always in quite good. It's not. It's not. It's not mean. It's just. It's playful. But um, I enjoy. I do enjoy that. And I've always enjoyed. Um, I did a bit actually in my last show about. I read out the comments that uh, people had put under my Apollo set or some once I uh, done on telly, and they're, they're just the. The comments are, I mean, I think, oh, it's not that bad. Things are moving on in the world. And I look at that and I go, holy shit. No, they're not. This is horrific. So, yeah, I don't, I try not to look at those. But, yeah, I did a bit where I, I sort of read out. I mean, it's a bit arguably hacked in the read out comments, that kind of thing. But I've, it always worked really well. And I found it really funny and quite cathartic, I suppose. Because you, because it's kind of using someone's ammunition. It's like throwing the grenade back before it goes yeah, off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just the shit people would write. Um, yeah, that was always quite funny. And was that, in fact, I, I might have seen that bit. Was it about the comments underneath the viral baby? Oh, no, that was a different effect? one. Yeah, that was a good one. So I did a bit about um, the non-motherhood challenge. So instead of um, putting up four photos that make you proud to be a mum, this is before I was a mum, I did four photos that made me proud not to be a mother. And it was just me cuddling wine, basically. Uh, yeah, and sort of dissecting that's really good. It's funny, isn't it? I, I get real satisfaction from when you get a lovely bit. A lovely bit. I did a bit um, in my new show I'm working on at the moment, um, which I'm f- it's very... All I can think about is having... I've just had a baby. Well, just. She's seven months old now. So it's so difficult. I'm desperately trying to think of things that aren't baby-related because I don't want the whole show to be about that. So I'm desperately trying to think of extra tangents, but the... F- you know, some funny funny stuff happens to you when you had a baby. I had to, like, the story that I really like at the moment that I'm working on is I had to um, express milk, so pump my boobs on a plane. And that happening next to a guy and the questions he was asking, just really funny. Um, and I enjoy that. And that's all sort of coming together at the moment. And I'm enjoying, I'm like trying to see how, how much you can sort of stretch it, how much you can get out of it. Uh, I enjoy that. That's a real, real satisfaction there. And, and the, talk to me about the process of wringing all the bits out of... I think a lot of the time I worry about the truth. I'm like, well, that's not what happened initially. It's very truthful telling. And then it's like, oh, take out that bit. You know, it's just sort of, just imagine what, take it to the nth degree, what could have happened. And I think sometimes I, have to, I, get, do, I get a bit caught up in the truth. I think sometimes you have to be able to lie a bit or just imagine where it could have gone. Did you... There's a bit in your Netflix special. No, no, sorry, it's not Netflix. It was a bit on your Apollo set, on one of your Apollo sets, when you were talking about having sex with your partner. And you said, uh, in my defence, there was nothing on Netflix and I'd oh. finished all the biscuits. Yeah. And I struck me, on my note that I said, I said to myself, this is necessary, right? Like, I wonder if, because you are apparently a winner, because you're tall, attractive, powerful, you know, and talking about sex... Do you need to slightly undercut your winnerness by kind of pointing out, oh, I'm going to finish all the biscuits? Right. Do you know what I mean? Is that, do, you, do you see what I'm getting at? Right. Yeah, I suppose I do like undercutting things. Um, all I'm thinking of when you said that, that was, it was my Netflix, but the real, I had to change it to be American. Okay. Because uh, it was filmed in Canada, so it, and it had to be international. So I think you would usually say, 
had sex, uh, there was nothing. There was nothing new on iPlayer, and I'd finished all the mini magnums, <laughs> which is funny. Ever didn't yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so frustrating. Yeah, but yeah, to find something that translates was tricky. Um, but what I mean is, like, there's the, there's the fun of undercutting an yeah, ideal. Yeah. But is there also because you are apparently a winner? Do you feel like that? So that's part of. Like, I, I think that's something you do on stage quite a lot, is that when you, you almost, it's not apologising for it, but there are some comedians who look like Daniel Kitson, right? And they look, like, unusual, and you can look at them as an audience and go, that person has suffered somehow. Mm-hmm. You know, most of, like, I think most comedians, you can, they will exude some sort of sense of, life has done me wrong. Right. And then there are more and more comedians these days whereby they look like, hey, I had a great childhood. I'm a happy person. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Do you, do you see what I mean? That division yeah. between those things. Seeing as you ostensibly fall very much into that second category, mm. I wondered if that's a thing that you are aware of doing, whereby you are needing to point out to us that you're not, you don't think you're all that. I don't think it's, it's I don't think it's that conscious. I think in general... I find being a bit self-depreciating, if I said it right. I think it's self-deprecating. I always can, I can never say that right. Uh, self-deprecating. I find that, um, I've always found that funny. And it's, and it's, and it's, it's relatable. Like, I would it's much funnier. Like, I, in my shows, I quite often will refer to myself as um, a part-time feminist icon. And I will say um, I'm a star of Channel 5's hit show. Budgies make me laugh out loud. Like that is, which is true. Uh, it's funnier <laughs> me. How can that oh, be true? Stuart, they pay the mortgage. So it's um, it's funnier me saying referencing that I've done Budgies make me laugh out loud than it is saying on stage that I did a Netflix special. Do you know what I mean? Like it's funny to that's funnier to show your vulnerability to show the 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 things that aren't the super shiny starry things I just think it's funnier so why wouldn't you say it and if I do mention things like when I've done I did my last show um I was talking about comments and it was live at Apollo because I spoke I spoke about live at Apollo but I would be like oh my god I can't believe you brought that up oh my god it's so embarrassing I don't talk about it oh but I've got some time so and then I'll go into it that way I think you have to I don't know from my point of view I will I like to undercut it yeah I suppose you I don't have know to. Where, you started saying you have to I well I think I have to but not because it's me I just think you as a human you'd have to I don't know. That's what I would... is comfortable for me. Maybe, maybe it is. It's like a... Your body language now. Don't mind talk about it. <laughs> but that's, that's weird, isn't it? I don't know. Maybe like, it all comes down to not feeling, uh, again, like an outsider and stuff. I'm wanting to flick, deflect it all. Don't, don't look at me. Don't look at me. I'm shy. That sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm, I am still... I'm still fascinated, I suppose, because... Because I feel like I sometimes look like a winner or seem like one... You know, I don't mean a winner. I just mean one of life's winners. Do you know what I mean? I'd like, you know, the, the image I project is a nice man. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And that's not very really useful <laughs> for comedy purposes. Right. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in... I, I never know why. You know, clearly I overanalyze everything. But um, I'm interested in why do I feel the need to do this? And I think from a similar position, like if you would, like I know I, I have had, uh, you know, mental health, what can I call it? I've been on a mental health journey, mm. you know, such that I've been profoundly unhappy and this, doing comedy, fixes it. Oh, wow. Um, not all the time. Yeah. But, you know, but over <laughs> okay. the, you know, that's the thing yeah. that's, you know, yeah. I, am, I, I am afforded 
dizzying highs as well as all of the self-doubt. Do you know what I mean? So that's like part of why I'm into it. But I'm still, I just come back to kind of like, why, why do you feel the need to put yourself through the difficult bits? It can't just be the satisfaction of the homework being done well. Why do I do stand-up, basically? Yeah. I don't know. I think, I don't know. I know at the beginning I started it because it was a way to, I was in a desk job that I didn't like and I felt like I'd let myself down. This is, I've always wanted to perform. This isn't what I wanted to do. How have I ended up here? So it was like a vent to show off um, and to prove, to give myself self-worth, really, to prove to myself that I, had, I was more than, you know, ordering mouse mats. I had more to me and I got real satisfaction from that and that's where it initially came from. And then I suppose it's tricky, isn't it? Because when a, as a lot of people listen to this will know, when you when your hobby becomes your job or something that you aspire to do well at, it can take the joy out of it a lot, sometimes, always. <laughs> Delete as appropriate. <laughs> um, so I suppose, yeah, it's not... As, if I was just doing it on the side, would I be happier? I don't know. Because like, I think comedy... I've gone through points where, like, after a tour and I haven't... I'm like, I'm going to take a year off Edinburgh. I'm not going to do any... I'm not going to really do anything. And I will and I will not really write any stand-up. And I'm very happy when that... I'm not... It's not like, oh, my God, I need to do a gig. Oh, my God. Like, I did not feel that. I did not feel that at all. I'm very happy to have a break. But, I, but when I'm on stage and it's going well, it's incredible. But the work you have to get there for those, you know, those magic gigs where it, all the stars align. That's the best feeling. And if you've never done, unless you've, unless you've experienced it, you won't know what it's like. It's just an absolute joy and you come out and you feel like an absolute god. And that's fantastic. But the work that it takes, it's just sifting gold to finally get yeah, that yeah. little bit of money. You can't go, I'll just take that one, yeah, please. No. <laughs> and I'll do something else the no, rest of the time. It's just so much work and worry and stress um to get there yeah sometimes it, it I think I think I would I don't know it's always the grass is greener I think may perhaps I would be happier if I didn't do stand-up but then that's a really weirdly stupid thing to say because I do and I am and I'm not going to stop so are you happy uh sometimes I'm always like I look I think I'm trying to write a bit about this in my show about things I would like my daughter to be and I, I'm very negative, and people think that I'm quite chirpy, and I'm quite, I am quite cheery on the outside, but inside, I feel a bit dead. Like I'm quite, I think I'm quite dark, and you wouldn't think it, right? You think, oh, she'd be fun on a night out. I'm like, I'm not. Oh no, you don't know. I can be, I'm just quite. I think I can be quite blue and depressive <laughs> quite a lot, and it's not. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not what you'd necessarily think. Um, so I think, and that, again, that comes, I think a lot of the time I need to remind myself of the things that I have and how lucky I am in life. Um, and I should be much, I should be, I should be happier. I des- everything that I have, I should be way happier than I am. But I'm just, I'm just a glass, glass is half empty person. I always have been, always been a warrior since I was a child. Mum, I've got to get to school. I need to finish my work. Like in primary school, what a dick. Like I've always been really stressy, really anxious. It's just what I am. It's just what I am. Have you ever had any help for it? No. I go through periods of going, I should probably talk to someone, but I don't know what I talk about. Mm, I worry quite a bit. Who gives a shit? It's not like I need to, I don't think, it's not like I need to be medicated, I don't think. Or maybe, you know, maybe I would take something and it would lift that bit of me. 
But my husband's like, you can fix it. It's just a mindset. And I'm like, it's not. I genuinely feel like it's hardwired. In that, that, this is who I am. This is my personality. Sorry, darling. But you're going to have to be giving me chirpy pep talks for the rest of my life because this is what I am. But I really hope my daughter is not like that. I really hope she's positive. But then I wonder if I was positive, maybe I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gone into stand-up because I wouldn't have craved the approval. Oh, Stuart. Who knows? We've gone down a strange road. <laughs> I mean, all, all of this is very... I'm finding all of this very relatable. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, the craving, the approval, the anxiety, the worry. You know, like, I was a terribly worried kid. Worrying mm. about stuff that now is, like, oh, what I did. Oh, right. God, yeah. Mm. Far more so... When I talk about mental health, it's far, far less to do with actual depression. Yeah. The depression always came at the sort of... The, the moments when the worrying became overbearing like I couldn't do anything but when the worrying became chronic you know? right but those um, yeah pep talks for the rest of your life again my wife at this point mm. nodding looking out the window yeah um, is there I don't know I, this is a, whenever the interviews get into this kind of territory <laughs> I always feel like saying but you can you can get help for that you can yeah. get less you can worry less there yeah. are, you know that what you're describing is a thing that's n- you're not the only person who've gone oh, through that of course that. yeah and people have um, no i mean I, I mean from the point of view of there's a lot of help and books have been written about how to stop people chronically worrying about stuff mm-hmm. but you're not going to get around to it can't be asked mate <laughs> got to flog it to watch <laughs> no i think maybe maybe i will do it at some point get around to doing it i think i am so fortunate uh, some of my one of my um, best friends used to live with her. She would always say, uh, when I we were ever blue, she would say, "How lucky are we that we have teeth? We are so lucky we have teeth." And I'm like, if you look at the little increment, little tiny things, you're like, "Yeah, we are lucky to have teeth." Yeah, and I am lucky to have a nice husband and a healthy baby and a lovely family and really shiny hair, Stuart. I'm not going to lie about it. So <laughs> there are many things I should be grateful for, and I think I should try and try and be. I think I need to actively try and be a bit happier. Such a great answer to the question, are you happy? Yeah. I need to actively try, try and be a bit Today happy. I will be happy. What do you want from comedy? What do you want to be doing in 20 years? Do you know, I have no idea. I was talking about this to someone the other day and uh, I said, I don't, I don't. They were like, what's your aim? I'm like, I don't really know. And I said back at them, what's your aim? And they were like, well, I've kind of done all the things that I really wanted to do. And I thought, I've never thought about it like that. And in a way, I think I kind of have. Like to do... To host Live at Apollo was really big for me. Um, and it really felt like, it felt like a real, a real, a real moment, a real thing. And I think that, and Netflix, done a Netflix special. I've been in a, I've been a main part in a sitcom. Um, I've toured to like, Places, nice places. They've sold like sold out. People have come, bought tickets. That still blows my mind. People buy tickets to spend the evening view. It's incredible. So in a way, I've kind of done everything that I wanted. So I don't know what I want now, and that's I think sometimes tricky for me. I don't know if it's if it's harder or easier to know if you know exactly what you want. Is it easier to be able to struggle, to, you know, to go for that goal, or is it? I don't know if it's more beneficial to me to be like floaty and sort of see what happens I've always just said and I started out saying I just want to earn a living showing off and that's what I've done what will happen in the future I do you think well you're not always going to be I was gonna say the hot young thing I'm already absolutely not the hot young thing but you're not always you know you're not always there's always fresh blood coming through 
and we'll be flushed out of the system soon enough. So I suppose it's kind of making hay while the sun shines. Um, and then I'll go and work in Cafe Nero. I had a final question after this one about what do you want? America? Question mark? I mean, Netflix special, right? Yeah. Opening doors, plans, move the family to America? Oh, I don't know. I've got, um, I've got an American representation now, which came off the back of Netflix. Um, so we'll see. I don't know. Got a visa? No, I don't have a visa. But I don't know. It's, it's different now. I suppose a few years ago I could have thought about doing pilot season, but even then it wasn't really... I just don't think it would make me thrive. I don't think I could cope with it, to be honest. Um, so I don't know. It would have to be... Having a, a family, you have to be like, well, how does that work? If it would be financially beneficial to all of us, then maybe. I mean, it wouldn't be bad. It wouldn't be bad, would it? It wouldn't be bad. So, I don't know. I think I could do... I think... I think I could like it over there. And I think I'm... As long as I don't have to do an American accent, I've got to work on that. Oh, my God. Nearly there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I might like it. But I don't know. Again, I'm not... I don't have... I'm not, you know, I'm not 25, so... I don't know. I don't know, Stuart. I, I just... wish we were doing this one on video because you've put <laughs> so many brilliant facial expressions during the day. Also, I did notice as you were talking a little while ago, uh, you, you've got funny fingers. Your thumb bends really to... weird. Jesus Christ. Really odd, that, isn't it? That's what people say. Whenever you go on telly shows, they go, Have you got any fun skills? And I'm like, That's literally all I've got. I can bend my thumb at a right angle. Enjoy that. What would you have engraved upon your comedy gravestone? Uh. Um, she was all right, wasn't she? <laughs> Better than her heels suggested. Better than her heels suggested. <laughs> nice. Thanks, man. So that was Ellie. She's just so much fun to be around. She's so funny. She's so upbeat. She's so uh, just just kind of loves it all and just gets her teeth into it and uh, is just a really brilliant presence. So I hope you'll go and see her. I think she's fantastic. And um, uh, her tour details and everything are available at ellietaylorcomedy.com. Thank you, Ellie, for coming on the show. A quick reminder to all of you that my own tour details, I mean, we'll resolve the Glasgow thing at some point. At some point, I'm in Glasgow. But whether it's the 2nd of October or the 2nd of January... I mean, it's unlo- Oh, no, I'm in the 1st of February. Christ, I'm falling apart. Our house is a building site at the moment, and I am 90% concrete dust. Um, but go to comedianscomedian.com slash tour if you'd like to see me at Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Northampton, Tynmouth, Swindon, Nottingham, Birmingham, Bristol, Aldershot, Corsham, Newcastle, Glasgow, Farnham, Cambridge, Darleydale, Meesham and Droitwich. The DFS sale must end soon. Thanks to Nathan for producing the show. Thanks to Rob Smouton for the music. Jake Crossland for the logging. And your podcast consultant, as ever, is Peter Dobbing, although whether he listens to the show anymore, I don't know, to be honest. Um, that's everything. I'll post Amble at you shortly. That's everything. Get in touch. Info at comedianscomedian.com or at comcompod on various social media, which I rarely check. But do join the Facebook group because I will be... Oh, join the Facebook group because it's a lovely corner of the internet, as we know. But also, if you are a member of the Insiders Club, which is permanently available for you to join at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, 
then what you can uh, what you will get hold of is a uh, the pilot as soon as it's edited i'm going to start editing it tomorrow a sort of pilot no we're past the proof of concept stage we've proved it a pilot for a new narrative podcast which i am doing and uh, it's pretty exciting and i'm going to not release it i'm going to or even launch it i'm going to try it out on members of the insiders club and see what you all think of it so uh, there has never if there are there's never been a better time. What's the phrase for there's never been a better time to join something if the implication is that each time I say that, it continues to get better? Like, there continues to be never a better time. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, the, the, the moments of which it could be... You get my point. Okay. Um, I'll post Amber at you soon because this is already devolving. And as you can hear, the police are outside the door. Thanks to Ellie. Thanks for listening. Please feel free to continue sharing this podcast around to your nearest and dearest, and I'll speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Wow. What happened to me then? I'm, I'm recording this in my office. It's a corner of an office, and I'm fairly sure it's being illegally sublet to me. But um, there's no one else here, so I've gone all giddy, and I'm talking into the old box of memory foam, old faithful, old uh, PAC0194 box fans. Um, uh, what will I tell you about? We've, um, we came home from our fabulous holiday, which I mentioned last week. Oh, Jesus Christ, if you haven't heard the Rob Orton episode released last week, is it 306, something like that? Holy God, I've had some lovely feedback about that. I just want to follow Rob around. Rob makes me feel like, he makes me feel simultaneously like, oh, I get how messianic figures happen. I get how people, how lowly people like me get devoted to figures who seem Christ-like. Simultaneously, I also feel like, oh, he's someone that you could follow, but you could trust him to do the right thing in all circumstances because he's so genuine. Um... I mean, that's dangerous. That's probably what everyone thinks when they end up following someone. But my point is, if you've not heard it, what a lovely man, what a deep thinker, what an honest and interesting person who you ask him a question and you can, you can feel him. It's almost, I don't mean the gears grinding. You can sort of see on his face that he's thinking of how to answer it most truthfully and sincerely and concisely. I just, I love it. If you haven't heard that episode immediately stop just this the rest of this will be just five minutes of fluff it's a waste of your life but um stop now and listen to the rob orton episode from last week it's a blinder and if you're in the insiders club uh then the extras are i mean i, I never like they look all my guests are my babies as you know but um i never like to go hey these these are better than xyz but uh they are ah i love it i absolutely loved it so if i <laughs> well there we are bit of advertising space there of which i advertise last week's episode oh, am I doing that thing with my voice I feel like because I'm giddy and I've had coffee recently that's it you know have you noticed this other comics you'll be in a comedy club you'll turn up you'll introduce yourself to the tech and the tech will go oh hello mate how you doing and be normal and then you'll go oh sorry I'll introduce you and then get on the mic and go ladies and gentlemen and you're like who is this guy I think the struggle of the struggle the, uh, the challenge of broadcasting is to try to sound as Try to stay being you. And this is me. This is just an excitable version of me. But I wonder if I'm slipping slightly into, ladies and gentlemen, territory. Um, slow down. Take that coffee. It was great. What will we talk about? The house is a building site. 
They're scaffolding up, but I trust the guys. And also, I know what I said last time to the scaffolders of yesteryear to make them get rid of their scaffolding, so I'm, I'm not unduly worried about it. My children are being wonderful, but who cares about that? Um, I'm excited about the tour. I felt, I hope that didn't sound disingenuous when I ended up talking about all those different places, but I'm, you know, what are we in, four, five years into touring? And now I've got sort of real relationships with rooms. The Swindon Arts Centre I went to last time, it wasn't that busy. I'd never been there before, and you never know with an arts centre how much of a following you have in that area. Um, but uh, even though it wasn't full, it was so much fun. They just got it. It's just one of those ones where you just feel yourself going, like two minutes in, you're doing it, or five minutes in, I'm doing a little joke that makes me laugh, that's, that probably if you don't laugh at it, you just consider it a detail. And three people, really, or four people go, and that ripples. And it's just one of the ones where you think, oh, you get me, this is going to be great. And then that kicks me into the gear. Wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't it be good? I'm going to start selling a, an app. <laughs> Some sort of app or reminder for, me, for comedians. You know, when, you remember the idea me and Tom Allen had years ago about a little robot, a sort of, it was, a, it was his notion and my idea. I don't think Tom Allen's had an idea about a robot in his life and more fair play to him. Um, but just to have a little droid like the one that uh, Luke Skywalker practices blindfold on, a little hovering spherical guy that would hover around your, your comedian head all day long and when you unselfconsciously said a funny thing to a friend, it would just record it and then send it to you later on and go, are you, are you doing that? Are you doing stuff on that? Well, similarly, wouldn't it be nice? Oh, for fuck's sake, I've forgotten my original point. <laughs> I don't have enough of a memory now to do, to segue, to do loops or tangents within what I'm saying alone in a room. I was an equivalent thing. I mean, I could listen back to this, but come on, I'm never going to do that. Um, an equivalent thing. Oh, you know, when you're... Yeah, that's it. So you, you would perform and you would have a spherical. It would need to be cloaked or invisible somehow. Just a little... I mean, it needn't be spherical, but it, the point is it's revolving around you like a satellite, like a little moon. It could be organic. And it would just whisper in you, they're loving this. And you'd be wonderful because... We all should be as good on any given moment as we are when our favourite joke that's often ignored in the set, like a little jokelet, suddenly gets a woof and you think, whoa, this is going to be great. Maybe the successful people are people who can kick themselves into the success, the really successful people. They can kick themselves into, whoa, these guys love me. And then that puts them in that gear regardless of the evidence. <laughs> it's delusion, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's all about delusion. That'll do. Will that do? It's, uh, it's nice being back at work. I'm back in the office and I've, I've been tearing through uh, admin and I've got this big edit coming up. And I, um, you know when you've got like a job in your mind and you, you think, oh, I'm going to... Got, you've got it hanging over you. Well, editing this new podcast thing together this little narrative idea i just hope it's such a good idea i just hope i can do it before someone else does it um but that's how i feel about everything hey here's a thing on the subject of that's how i feel about everything two particularly interesting things happened interesting if you're interested in me and the things i think in my head so i'm you know let's let's call interesting Whenever I regard something as interesting, let's assume, you and I, from now on, that it's in inverted commas and uh, if, if the sorts of things that interest me interest you, which is how language works, that's what it means to anyone. Um, 
what happened was I a chance conversation with my wife, her mother, her brother, and her brother's wife, my wife's half of the family, um, all lovely people, fantastic holiday. I made a chance remark about not being able to relax in the bath. So, so you know, that wasn't, it wasn't a bit. <laughs> I was, we were talking about baths or something. And I said, God, yeah, but it's impossible to relax in the bath, isn't it? I can only stay in it for five minutes. I get all excited about drawing a bath. I didn't say that, but now I mean, that's the term, isn't it? I get all excited about drawing a bath. You get all the water in it, and then you sit in it going, ah, relaxation. And then two minutes later, you're going, ah, fuck, fuck, what do I do? And three minutes later, you get out of the bath. Right. Like, on the way to another point. And they all looked at me like I was insane. And I suddenly realised I was the only person, certainly in that villa at that time, that has struggled like that, right? That has that problem. Are you like this? Do you, are you able to actually enjoy a bath? I'm not. I, I love the idea of a bath. It's like I love the idea of being drunk. I don't like actually being drunk. I just want to, want to do that thing they do in Good Omens where they click their fingers and sober up immediately. Um, so, further from that, having established that I alone, amongst this group of uh, five adults on holiday together, um, having established that I'm the one that can't relax in the bath, I then... You remember Robin Ince talking about hypervigilance? That's been pinging around my head since we had that conversation. And I realised my, my, uh, my mother-in-law gently pointed out to me, or kept gently pointing out to me, after this conversation, for the rest of the holiday, that I was doing it again. And here's the thing I was doing again. Constantly telling my child to be careful. Constantly telling him to be careful. The, the Boutros, I know I've got two, <laughs> but there's only, you know, there's only one that I need to say to be careful at the moment. Um, constantly telling Boutros... Oh, watch out, mind, mind out for that. If you do that, you're, well, you know, you're on your own, but, you know, make your own decisions, but I wouldn't jump on that because you might break, fall off and smash your face. Constantly telling him, constantly programming him that the world is a dangerous place in which to exist. And I think it's because, and look, without wanting to get too spoilery, one of the things that came up in Primer was a conversation about a, a nasty car accident that me and my family were involved in when I was a kid. And me wondering the extent to which, wondering about the extent to which that has coloured my anxiety and my life and why my, all my decisions and everything, because it was a big traumatic incident as a child. But now, I don't remember much of life before then. I don't remember much of my uh, childhood, really. It's an awful thing to say, because I had to, <laughs> to dump my childhood to get another eight gig in my watch. That is a Johnny Mnemonic reference, and... Um, it, I condemn you if you understood it. But um, uh, the point is, I couldn't remember much before then, but I think I became quite jumpy after then, and now I am absolutely racked with hypervigilance and constantly afraid something's going to happen to either child and my wife and everyone. And as we were talking about it, my wife had our baby in her arm and she turned to walk across the street without really looking. It was pedestrianised and empty. This is the middle of nowhere in a little village in Mallorca. There's no traffic, but just the fact of her turning around, I just visualised her being hit by a car. I mentioned that to my mother-in-law, and she went, what? And we had one of those moments like, what do you mean you can't relax in the bath? Because no one else does that. And to me, that's second nature to constantly imagine and visualise everything going wrong. I talked about this in a show in 2011, which didn't really work as a show. It was called Another Lovely Crisis, and the premise was sound, but I couldn't make it work. Um, but I see the whole world like that all the time. 
and it's exhausting. Do you do that? Answers on a postcard. <laughs> Can you A, relax in the bath, and B, do you constantly imagine the worst happening, and C, is it exhausting, and D, have you ever found any help with it? Or mental exercises, not, but I haven't got time for books. I haven't got time to fix my life and make myself happy. But just a little life hack, a little way of thinking about things. Do you remember my friend Graham years ago talked about this on the pod? I think he, he, he talks about a way of dealing with worries being to imagine them as a little jangly, spiky-shaped plastic form. And when you realise that you're worrying, just visualise picking that little plastic form out of your head, that little nugget or whatever it is, and revolving it, just sort of turning it around in your hands and looking at it and going, oh, how strange, how silly, and sort of smiling at it and then putting it on a shelf. And that helps you kind of get the worries out of your head. Something as convenient and quick working as that, but for deep-seated, possibly PTSD-related worry and hypervigilance. So compose all of those four answers into a, a tweet and send it to me at ComComPod or email me info at comedianscomedian.com and why not resurrect this? I, having hacked through so many emails this morning and with plenty ahead of me. Do you remember the little system? I love it when people do this because it means they're long-term listeners. But if you write, uh, PS, I'm a cool guy at the end of your email, then that's you giving me social permission to give you a shorter answer than a shorter reply than your email really entails. I love when people do that. And when people do that, they often get longer messages because I'm so grateful. Oh, right. Day one. Next year's Edinburgh show, day one. September the, what, 9th. Let's get cracking. Thank you.